Um, if you have that or if you'd like to listen, I think I've also got it on a screen um, to follow if you like as well. Hebrews chapter 11, sorry, Hebrews chapter 7, starting from verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, right after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who had become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's God's word. I lie. need that. We're all so dull. We're all so slow. We also have a tendency towards having hearts that will harden against you. So Lord, speak words of life. Enlighten us and open our eyes and our ears by your spirit and through your word this morning. Amen. Okay, so there's a big question that I want to start at the outset of this, and I think it's going to act as a bit of a a new mooring post. And it's just found in verse 11. So go back and find verse 11 again. This is our big question that I think is going to help us to try to make sense of where the writer of Hebrews goes in this short passage. So let's, let's just read it again. Um, and just reflect on parts of that verse, see if we can understand the question that's driving the text here. Hebrews 7 verse 11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, and then there's a bracket, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? It's a long question. Let's just restate it for a little bit and break it down and see what we can understand of what the writer is asking here. I think if we misunderstand his question, 
If, he, if we misunderstand what he's asking us to think about, then it's essential. So let's, let's go back through it quickly again for a moment. He says, now if perfection had been attainable, it's kind of language that we might not use regularly in the way that we speak. But this question, you can see the words that are in there. This is about achieving something. This is about gaining something. If perfection had been attainable, how do I get a right standing with God? That's the type of perfection that he's, he's talking about. To be perfect in God's eyes. Who doesn't want that, right? I mean, we, we all sort of, I guess, if you have some love for God this morning, if you're listening, you're here, and you're like, I really want to do better. I, wanna, I don't want to make so many mistakes in my life all the time. I don't want to feel like I get to the end of the day and just think, oh, man, I really stuffed that day up. And, and he's asking this question, now, if perfection had been attainable, if it was possible to achieve it, maybe... Maybe you've asked yourself a question which is similar to this, which is, how can I know that I'm right with God? How can I get to the end of my day, end of my week? How can I lay on my deathbed and, and know, am I right with God? But he adds to the question now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, because that's where the law came from. If, if it was possible for us to follow all the, the laws that we see laid out by the Levitical priesthood under Moses' leadership, the Ten Commandments and the 600 and something other ones that are in there, if it was possible to achieve perfection through that, here we get to the real thrust of his question, why do we need Jesus? Why why do we need this new priest of the order of Melchizedek? We might want to restate this question very simply by saying, if it were possible to be right with God through keeping a moral and spiritual code of conduct, why has Jesus come? So that question now becomes our new mooring post. Okay, we're, going to, we're going to tie off to that question and see if we can connect back can answer that. To see if the writer answers that for us and helps us in our understanding. So let's just sort of pull back a little bit from the question now and just think about some of the things that he talks about there. One of the big themes of that question was if it was possible to obtain perfection through the line of Levi, through the Levitical priesthood. So let's just make sure that we've got at least a bit of a summary version of what that looked like. So, so that we can get a handle on what the writer means by that, through the Levitical priesthood, or, or he also says in that passage, the order of Aaron. Both of those things are different ways of saying the same thing. I thought it'd be good for us to recap a little bit of the history for a moment um, and revisit the patriarchs of the Hebrew so I've put together a little slideshow of pictures, Sandra. The first one is Abraham, who, funnily enough, looked awfully like Santa. <laughs> I wonder if people, you know, I wonder if people were travelling through that era and just thought, man, that guy looks like Santa. But anyway, 
Abraham, all right? The, the, the real patriarch of the Hebrew nation. When we talked about this last week, didn't we? When people of the Israelite, the Hebrew um, nation, when they identify themselves as something, they will say, we are children of a promise that was binding. And God, as a part of that covenant, promised to Abraham, I'm going to give you a family, I'm going to give you a nation, they are going to number as more than the stars of the skies, more as the sand on the shore, they will be your offspring and descendants. And and Abraham simply believed God. Thanks for reading those passages out from Romans this morning, Marty. He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. That's where righteousness comes from. A simple faith, a simple belief to say, you know what? God said it. I see no evidence that this is at all possible, but God said it. Yeah. I believe it. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> There's Abraham. Great way to start a nation. Well, after Abraham, God fulfilled his promise. There's another slide. Abraham has a son, dapper-looking young man, Isaac. (laughs) All right? Isaac comes along. He lived through a tumultuous opening to his life. He nearly didn't make it, but he did. And um, God's promise was fulfilled. Isaac comes onto the picture. Following Isaac, Isaac has a son. Isaac has a son, Jacob. All right? Shifty looking character, isn't he, Jacob? You wouldn't trust him with a bowl of soup. I mean, Jacob is a. Um, he, yeah, he's looking like a cowboy. I'm not sure what he's smoking, but he's. There's Jacob. All right? The the promise of God, the covenant that God has entered into with this family is continuing through the lineage of the family. Um, Jacob, even though he wasn't the eldest son in this era, the eldest promised his blessing to this nation. This is how you will know me, he says, by entering into this relationship of promise with me. So now we've got Abraham, we've got Isaac, we've got Jacob, three generations of this family. It continues. Let's go to the next slide. Jacob has bunches of kids, but 12 sons, all right? You'll know some of them, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, the list goes on. Of course, the very famous ones are down the bottom, the guy that had fancy Hawaiian shirts, um, Joseph. Um, 12 Twelve sons, these twelve sons become what would be known as the heads of the clans, the heads of the families of Israel, or what the Bible says, the tribes of Israel. Now, if you're familiar at all with this part of the history of Israel, we know that around the time when Joseph was fairly young, um, of course, made very far- Come and live here with me, and there'll be plenty of food. I'll look after you. And so Jacob, whose name by this stage has been changed, and now Jacob's name is Israel. Israel 
and his 12 sons and their daughters and all the rest of their families, they pack up their donkeys and their carts and they head off to Egypt and they settle down there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. Now, do you notice the name of the fourth eldest son? What's his name? Judah. What about the third eldest son? Levi. Now, we've just been talking about in Hebrews, the Levitical priesthood, the line of Levi. All right? And then it says the order of Aaron. Okay, we're going to get to that pretty shortly as well. Is there another slide to there? Okay, great. So, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, the three eldest. They, they're, the whole family's down in Egypt. We know that things don't go well in Egypt, do they? It's not exactly what they thought it would be. Eventually, there's a leader in Egypt who doesn't know these people. He says, who are all these foreigners living here? Let's make them work for us. And so the nation of Israel gets enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt and a number of generations pass by before, of course, um, Disney's Prince of Egypt um, happens and Moses is born, thrown into the river, floats down. Pharaoh's daughter plucks him out. He calls him Moses, which means drawn out of the water and raises him as a prince. Reinstitutes his covenant with his people again. He says, listen, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm your God too. And so he reinstitutes this promise, this covenant, and he inscribes it on stone. And he chooses one of the families to be his chosen family within Israel to be priests, to be the ones who would stand in the gap between God and the people, representing the people to God and God to the people. And he says, you're going to be my priestly family. And he chose that good looking young fellow up the top with the beard that looks a little bit like mine. (laughs) Levi. All right. He chose the family of Levi. And from that day on, they were called the Levitical priesthood, the line of Levi, or sometimes the order of Aaron, because Aaron became the very first high priest of Israel. All right, so we've got a little bit of that historical background in our heads now. Hopefully, that's helpful. Let's return to our original question. Hebrews 7.11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? I mean, if if that was enough, if that was enough, If that line that came from Aaron and successive generations after him, priest after priest after priest after priest, if that was sufficient, the writer of Hebrews says, why do we need Jesus? Because Jesus didn't come from that line. So here's my first point that I think the writer is making. 
First one is this. We, we have a faulty family tree. You ever done a family tree? I, si- I signed up for, um, I don't know, there's a heaps of them online. Ancestry.com. Ancestry.com or something like that. I hope none of you really like it. I think it's a rort. Anyway, um, they want to bill you all the time. But I signed up for it with one of those three-month trials. Free trial, had a look at it. I was interested in my family tree. You start digging back through the family tree and you go, oh, yes, old uncle so-and-so and granddad this fella and great-grandfather. You don't have to dig very far, do you? And it's, you can uncover some pretty... It's like, oh, I didn't know that. It's like, I was always told that we were a really upstanding, balanced family. We weren't. Probably yours wasn't either. The, the, the issue is that the writer says this family tree, it's faulty. There's a, a Levitical letdown that occurs. Something that they were, we, we thought that could be achieved through the priesthood, through the law, which never eventuated. I think quite often in life, we only come to the right answer once we acknowledge that we've been asking the wrong questions. So here's a spoiler alert. The writer immediately in this passage starts arguing that it was never, it was never possible to obtain perfection through the Levitical priesthood. And that the order of Aaron was evidence of a faulty family tree. Have a look at verses 18 and verse 19 of chapter 7. Hebrews 7 verses 18 and 19 says this, just the beginning of it. For on the one hand, a former commandment, he's talking about there this, the law in, in the way that it was structured through the Levitical priesthood and through the order of Aaron. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. Remember what the question was? If it was possible to obtain perfection through the Levitical priesthood, if it was possible for me to get to the end of my day and say, I know I am right with God because the Levitical priesthood has made it possible, straight away he starts to argue, you know what? The law made nothing perfect. It was weak and it was useless in a specific way. If we were to fast forward out of Hebrews 7, I want you just to flip forward to Hebrews 10, just one verse. Hebrews 10, verse 1. We're going to get to this in a future series, but let's just have a brief look at it now. Hebrews 10, verse 1. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So as a way of illustrating this, let me confess something to you. About 17 years ago, I was driving from Sydney to Queensland on our Christmas holidays. I decided to take the scenic route rather than the boring freeway. And I was hooking along a country road, mostly doing the speed limit. Somewhere up near the border, I passed through a small town of about half a dozen houses. Kept on motoring out the other side of it. And about five k's further on, suddenly there came the unmistakable sound of a siren. 
and the blue flashing lights in the revision mirror. I pulled over, had a chat with the lovely gentleman, dressed in blue, and um, he politely asked me had I realised that I had passed through a small town about five kilometres back. He also politely asked me, uh, was I aware that that small town had a speed limit? Um, I think I was probably pretty polite with him as well. Long story short, though, is I ended up in Parramatta Courthouse, facing a three-month suspension of my licence and an excess of $1,000 in fines. Here's why I tell the story. The law on speeding is clear, right? Crystal. Here's the speed limit. Don't go over it. It's not open for interpretation. There's the sign. Make sure that sign matches your speedo or less. It's clear. The penalties for breaking the law, even though I thought they were a little harsh in my situation, but the penalties for breaking the law are also clear and just. If you speed and get caught, you will face these penalties. It's not rocket science. I even presented evidence to the judge in an attempt for him to show leniency to me that I had a perfect driving record. I'd never been caught for speeding. That's different to not speeding, by the way. But I'd never been caught for speeding. I didn't even have as much as a parking ticket to my name. I was a perfect driver in the eyes of the law. And then I broke the speed limit by in excess of 30 kilometres an hour in a built-up residential area and I faced court. And it didn't matter what evidence I had of my perfection up until that point in time, guess what happened? I lost my licence and I had to pay fines. Yet none of those truths, the clarity of the law, the clarity of the of the outcome of breaking that law, none of those truths were able to control my right foot on the day that I drove through that town. Here's why. Have you ever travelled long distance with kids in the car? I'd gone from Sydney to Queensland in one day. I was almost at the border. I love my kids, but man was I sick of them. In that moment, I was just like, I just want to get to where I'm going. I don't want to stop. No, you went to the toilet three hours ago. You can hold on. I just wanted to go. I wanted to be where I wanted to be. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And so I did what I wanted to do. And I put my foot down and I went. The law was unable to perfect me in that moment because my will will always override it. In a similar way, God's law is unable to perfect us because our hard hearts and our will will always rebel against it to fill our desires, what we want. And whether it's just to get to where we want to go or to get the things that we want, that we think will fulfill us, our will will override God's law. 
Because God's law is beautiful. It is sweet, like honey from the comb. God's law reveals the righteousness of God to us. But if we ask of it something that it cannot do, it isn't the failure of God's law that is at fault, but the failure of our own hearts to conform to it. We fail to conform to the righteousness of God. And so we have this faulty family tree, a Levitical line, a Levitical letdown that will never be able to perfect our hearts. And so we needed a better priest, which is our next point, a better priest. The answer isn't found in Levi and it can't be found in Aaron. The law will expose all of us. It will condemn all of us. That we needed a new priesthood. We needed a new representative for us. We needed a better high priest. One who could accomplish for us what we could not achieve on our own. And so we come to Hebrews 7 verses 15 and verse 16. Go back and read it. The writer says this becomes even more evident when another priest, another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. We'd have to go back and recap last week's. We don't have time to do that today. But another priest that rises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. I mean, a priest of Aaron's order, if you were a part of the Levitical line, you were a priest simply on the basis of your family tree. If you woke up one day and you looked up your lineage and you said, well, my dad was from Levi, my granddad was from Levi, my great-granddad was from Levi, guess what? You're from Levi. Guess what? You're part of the priestly order. You were born into that line. You were born into the priesthood. If the guy at the top of your family tree was Levi... Well, that makes you a priest. We needed a different standard. We needed a more secure hope than that which requires continual sacrifices, generation after generation. We needed a priest who could bring us into the presence of God. So Hebrews 7 verses 18 and verse 19, read that. We've already looked at it once, but we're going to read the whole thing. It says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we what? Draw near to God. And so Levi's line is replaced. I've got another little picture to illustrate that. There's Aaron under the family of Levi. His line is replaced. It's cancelled. And introduced is now the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus, our Messiah. And so we have in Romans chapter 8, Verses 3 and 4, you can just listen to it if you want to or turn it up if you've got the time. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says this. For God has done, let me start that again. For God has done what the law, 
weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Our hearts of stone mean that the law is never able to bring, into right, bring us into right relationship with God. The law of God can never perfect us. And so God steps in. And it's one of those but God moments in the Bible. This is the situation. This is the hopelessness of it. This is our desperate need. And then we get this but God. But God can step in. God has done what the law couldn't. God has declared his son Jesus to be the means by which our hearts of flesh are transformed and renewed by the spirit. And Jesus has become our priest of promise. So here's the last and closing point. We now have the power of an indestructible life as our priest. God has declared that Jesus, who is not of the order of Aaron but he's instead of the order of Melchizedek, will be our perpetual priest, the one who lives forever. Hebrews 7 and 17 says, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus stands forever as our substitute. Jesus stands forever as our advocate. I want you to listen this morning. Your salvation is as secure as Jesus is. Hebrews 7 and 21 says, But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That's what God has said of his son, Jesus. And Hebrews 7 and 22, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So this is how we find our rest in Jesus. This is how we answer the question that we began with. If it was possible, remember what the question was? If it was possible to attain perfection, why do we need Jesus? The writer says it wasn't possible. It was never going to be possible to obtain perfection through the line of Levi. We always needed a, a redeemer. We always needed a rescuer. We always needed a Messiah. So in Christ, we have a better hope. We have a guarantee that we can draw near to God. Hebrews 7 and 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect. We've talked about that. But on the one hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This morning, our desire is to draw near to God, isn't it? Maybe you're visiting here today or maybe you're listening online. You're thinking, I don't know if I've ever drawn near to God. How do I do that? We do that through Jesus. There isn't another way. There's no moral code that you can live up to that would do it. There's no perfection that you could obtain through your behavior to, to appease God in such a way to say, now you've found perfection. There isn't another way. There is only Jesus. He is our great high priest. He is a better hope. He is our guarantee. 
Verse 22 said that he is our guarantor. You know what a guarantor is? A guarantor is one who has the power and the resources to guarantee something. So just imagine you're a young couple. You want to buy your first house. So you go to see the bank. You sit down with the bank manager. He says, you want a loan? You go, yep. He gets the paperwork out. He says, no problem. Tell me about your assets. Got a 1993 Toyota Camry. Got a little bit of rust. Mechanically sound. He goes, okay, I'll tick that. Car. You own that car? Uh, I owe a bit of money to my dad for it. Radio. Owed money on it. Tell me about your job. I just had a raise at McDonald's. And I've got five more hours this week than I had last week. Okay, so you've got casual work at McDonald's. Yep, great. Casual work at McDonald's, written down in the form. He gets to the end of the interview and he says to you, I'm sorry, your application for a loan to buy the house up at Potter's Hill has been denied. You don't have the resources to pay back the loan. Then there's a knock at the door and your dad walks in. And your dad sits down at the step and he goes, can we go back to the beginning of the form, please? I'd like to add a few more details to it. And he gives the bank manager a list of all of his assets, a years after years of wise investments, successful businesses. And he gets to the end of it and he says, put my name down on the application as a guarantor for the loan, right? The bank manager says, well, that's different. You've just guaranteed on the basis of all of your resources that this young gentleman is going to be able to pay back his. Jesus is our guarantor. We, we approach God and he says, why, why should I have an unhindered relationship with you? Then anything that we bring to that discussion... We'll get to the end of the application. He would say, well, that's a really good effort. You get a participation trophy, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to not deny your application. But Jesus walks in and he says, no, 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 I guarantee it. On my resources, on who I am and what I've done, I guarantee Chris or Marty or Austin any, anyone here who has denied themselves and found their place at the foot of the cross and called out and said, Lord, I, I don't have what it takes. I'm a sinner. I need your redemption. I need your life. I need my heart to be renewed. I need to be a new creation found in Christ. Then Jesus stands as our guarantor. All we have left to do is humbly but confidently say as we stand in the presence of God, it's all grace. It's all grace. Jesus is my high priest. Jesus is my guarantee. Have you ever done that? 
Have you ever placed your eternal security into the hands of somebody else? Because that's what it takes. It takes a letting go of me earning my way and a pushing it all across to the table and saying, it's all Jesus or it's nothing. That's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion to finish off our service. We normally do it earlier. I thought, I want to do it at the end. So the communion tables are set up and there's going to be someone there to serve you soon and when I indicate time, I'd like you to stand if you know the Lord Jesus as your saviour and move in a socially distant way and line up and grab some bread and a cup, symbols. Often called the Lord's Supper more commonly known as communion. But I want you to, as we do that, listen to why Jesus told us that this was significant. We have the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is recounting to the Corinthian church what Jesus did to his very first disciples, what he did with them. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said to his very first disciples when he took the cup, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. We just read in Hebrews 7 that Jesus is the guarantor of the covenant. He's the guarantee of it. That that term new covenant is interesting, isn't it? Where does it come from? Well, one of the places it comes from very clearly is Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Let me read it to you as we're about to go and take the bread and the wine. Jeremiah the prophet says to the nation of Israel who were desperately trying to live up to the Levitical code and the Levitical priesthood, failing dismally. And Jeremiah, the prophet of God, says, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So come to the table. 
Don't come because of some religious duty. Don't come in some misguided attempt to impress God or anybody else in this room. And if all your efforts to earn your way into the presence of God have come to nothing, then I invite you, come to the table. Come if you've humbled yourself at the foot of the cross and cried out, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Come to the table if all you have to lean on, that all that is left is the grace of God, which is found in Take the bread, a symbol of Jesus' body broken for you. And take the cup, a symbol of a better covenant that Jesus has brought to us in the shedding of his own blood. And God says, I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sins no more. And we say, how do I know? And Jesus says, I guarantee it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. You are our guarantee. A guarantee for a better covenant. Lord, you have made a way for perfection to be attained. Not ours, but Christ's. And we stand with him. And he stands with us. Thank you for this bread, a reminder of what he's accomplished for us at the cross. Thank you for this blood, a reminder of the covenant that he now stands as guarantor over. And we worship you. In his name we pray. Amen. In your own time, come as a family or individuals, stations over to the left and the right and to the rear. Take the bread and the cup and return to your seat. Thanks, guys.